Kevin Markwick. Should have blown the cobwebs out. Motorhead, the ace of spades. From... <laughs> Did it again, didn't I? I? didn't look it up properly. I'm going to take a guess and then we'll see if I'm right, shall we? 1983. Yeah. Brings back some memories, though. As a young 16-year-old working on the bomber tour... But that's a rock and roll story. You don't want to hear about that. Anyway, hello, Kevin Markwick here. 
for another two hours of whatever it is we do. And uh, thank you to Adrian, of course, for uh, two hours of soul 70s grooviness. All request grooviness. So tonight uh, we're up to 1988. A red letter year in the uh, Mark Quick house. And uh, what have we got for you? Uh, ooh, Jonathan Richmond, some Lord, film music from Gabriel Yared, uh, John Barry, Cheney mops up 1987 in his own inimitable style. Oh, we've got the Last Emperor stuff as well. That's good stuff. And you, of course, please. Anything you'd like to say, get in touch. I'll tell you, I'll tell you how after Urza Furman. Shoot! 
Urza Furman, My Zero, on Domino Records. Now, uh, there are many ways to get in touch with the show. Not all of them involve a stamp. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, at Kevin Markwick. is probably the most efficient and quickest way to get to us. Or you can go to the Facebook page, if that's your thing. Uh, the Kevin Markwick Show, there's a Facebook page, which I update from time to time. I'm going to start putting all sorts of stuff on it, just to see if anyone's paying attention, frankly. Pictures of me in the time-posing pouch. Eh? Eh? What do you reckon? Good thing or bad thing? You decide. Write in and tell me. Or you can uh, get me at the studio here directly, uh, uh, studio at uckfieldfm.co.uk, or you can go online and um, there's a webcam thing where you can hurl abuse at me in text, in real time, and I can hurl abuse back at you. It's the future, isn't it, frankly? It's the future. Here's uh, Blood Orange.
Blood Orange. You're not good enough. Now, it was actually 1980, Motorhead. Shows you what I know, doesn't it? Absolutely nothing. I don't know, I thought it was later, because I remember it being in The Young Ones. Was that 19... Maybe that was 1980. I think The Young... Well, 81, I suppose, perhaps The Young Ones. Um, OK, we're going to have one of these, and when we come back, we got some good stuff, actually. Steve Malkmus, Nick Cave, and Jonathan Richmond. <laughs> There you go. That's uh, Stephen Malkmus and the Jicks uh, from... Actually, it's an album coming out next January called Wig Out at Jag Bags. That's the first single from it, actually, called Lariat. Um, Steve Malkmus, of course, uh, one of the main... Um, 
<sighs> Members of the band Pavement, one of the most influential sort of uh, indie lo-fi bands uh, of the 90s. Uh, <laughs> OK, come on, Kev, get it together. Uh, here's uh, another Brighton resident for you. It's uh, Nick Cave. Not that Steve Malkus is a uh, Brighton resident, as far as I know. Larry made his nest up in the autumn branches. Built from nothing but high hopes and thin air. He collected up some baby blasted mothers. They took their chances, and for a while they lived quite happily up there. It came from New York City, man, but he couldn't take the pace uh, And thought it was like a doggy dog world Then he went to San Francisco, spent a year in outer space uh, With a sweet little San Franciscan girl I can hear my mother wailing and a whole lot of scraping of chairs I don't know what it is, but there's definitely something going on upstairs. He had to get out of there In San Francisco, well I don't know And then to L.A. Where he spent about a day He thought even the pale sky stars Were smart enough to keep well away from L.A. Meanwhile, Larry made up names for the ladies Like Miss Boo and Miss Quick He stockpiled weapons and took pot shots in the air He feasted on their lovely bodies like a lunatic And wrapped himself up in their soft yellow hair I can hear chants and incantations And some guy is mentioning me in his prayers Well, I don't know what it is, but there's definitely something going on. Francisco, L.A., I don't know. But Larry grew increasingly neurotic and obscene. I mean, he, he never asked to be raised up from the tomb. I mean, no one ever actually asked him to forsake his dreams. Anyway, to cut a long story short, fame finally found him. Mirrors became his torturers. Cameras snapped him at every chance. The women all went back to their homes and their husbands with secret smiles in the corners of their mouths. He ended up, like so many of them do, back in the streets of New York City in a soup queue, a dope fiend, a slave, then prison, then the madhouse, then the grave. Oh, poor Larry. But what do we really know of the dead? And who actually cares? Well, I don't know what it is, but there's definitely something going on. Yeah. 
dig, Lazarus dig, uh, from Nick Cave. Now, um, is it the film part of the show you like? Is it the music part of the show that you like? Let me know, because, you know... <laughs> It would be interesting to know which... Or do you tune in for both? Do you think the eclectic mix of indie music, old classics, and me wittering on about film like a simple-minded horse uh, is what makes it attractive? Um, at Kevin Markwick on Twitter, Facebook page, uh, The Kevin Markwick Show, uh, or, you know, get online. Get online now, now this minute, and uh, put something in the, on the webcam-based text-entering activity arrangement thing. Uh, what have we got for you? Now, oh well, the film stuff's actually coming up. Uh, we got one more track, then we have to take a break, and then we go into the filmy stuff. Now, I've got a bit of a longer run at it this time, so uh, we got a sort of weird mix of uh, different things that have occurred to me in terms of film music. Uh, Then we go into Cheney mopping up 1987, which is rather good, and then we hit the main event at uh, eight, uh, nine o'clock, ten, ten (laughs) o'clock. Mm-hmm. 10 o'clock when uh, I'm travelling back to 1988, which is more scary than you can possibly imagine. Uh, here's Jonathan Richmond. One, two, three, four, five, six. Road runner, road runner. Going faster miles an hour. Gonna drive past a stopping shop. With the radio on. I'm in love with the modern world. It's when it's late at night And the neon when it's cold outside I got the radio on Just like a road on a Going around the highway I walked by the stopping shop Then I drove by the stopping shop I like that much better than walking by the stopping shop Cause I had the radio on with the modern world I felt in love with the modern world I felt in love with Flathead and Rosendale Cause I had the radio on I felt like a roadrunner With the radio on Now I said hello to the spirit of old 1956 It was patient in the bushes next to 57 Well, the highway was Girlfriend, cause I went by so quick And suburban trees were out there And consequently it smelled like heaven So I said, Roadrunner once Roadrunner twice We're in love with this feeling now It will be out on land Alright, now we can tell about our love, you man Radio on I got the AM I got the power, I feel the feeling now I feel the feeling and it's feeling alright now And I feel in touch with the modern world Okay, let's go now watts of power We go by faster miles an hour With the radio on Road runner, road runner Going faster miles an hour I'm 
I think that still sounds really contemporary, don't you? Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, uh, Roadrunner, which was it's been recorded various times. I think that's a recording that was put out in 1977, although it was originally recorded in 1972. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say to you all out there in podcast land was thank you very much for listening because we had a massive spike in the uh, podcast downloads this week. I can't imagine why. Perhaps people were going, you've got to listen to this. You can't believe it. <laughs> There's this guy on the radio. Uh, or uh, um, maybe the word's getting about. Anyway, we had about, uh, I think, triple the number of downloads that we normally have, which is massive. You know, if um, translated to some podcasts, that would mean like the entire world was listening. So uh, that was great. So if you're out there in the podcast land, thank you very, very much for listening. Um, and you get in touch as well and let me know how we're doing. Okay, we're going to have one of these. And when we come back, it's film time. A warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our programme. So here we are in the filmy hour, which is the middle hour, like a big film sandwich twixt two musical pieces of bread. Doesn't really work, does it, as an analogy, if we're honest. Uh, did you notice the Sight and Sound top ten uh, was out today? They made a big hoo-ha about that. How many of those have you seen? Actually, unusually this year, I think I've seen, of the top ten, I've seen them all bar two, I think. Oh, maybe three. Yeah. Active Killing, number one. That was quite something, actually. And Gravity, number two, which surprised me. Very sort of, um, very mainstream sort of picture for to be uh, number two in the sight and sound snooty top ten. <laughs> Blue is the warmest colour, number three. Yeah, and The Great Beauty at number four, which actually... It's higher than number four for me as my film of the year. Uh, I'm not sure what is. I'm surprised to see um, also the Empire Top 10 or Top 50 came out. And they put Nebraska at number 44. 
What are they thinking about? Honestly, I think that's got to be like in my number three. I'm quite decided. I mean, it's all stupid boy stuff, isn't it? All this list, but there you go. Okay, so what are we going to play you on the on the filmy part of the show tonight? Uh, we've got uh, coming up something from the Hunger Games, hey, uh, and Gabriel Yared, and we've got some Solaris and uh, some John Barry. But what we're going to start with, uh, just out of interest really more than anything else, The Hunger Games, which is taking phenomenal amounts of money, even in Upfield actually, and it's not necessarily our kind of thing, but this one seems to have uh, broken through and is doing even better than the last one. And of course what they do is they ram the soundtrack full of uh, current artists in an attempt to get you to buy the soundtrack album, um, which doesn't contain incidental music. I think they've probably got two soundtrack albums would be my guess. But anyway, this is an interesting one. This is Lord, who's kind of, uh, she's uh, riding high at the moment and her version of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Welcome to your life There's no turning back Lord and everybody wants to rule the world. Her version, I'm going to keep speaking because I can't remember the name of the band. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep speaking unless it, <laughs> it comes to me that their song by uh, them, the blokes with the hair and the mullets and 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 <sighs> it'll happen to you one day. It will. You know, songs from the big chair. What are they called? Oh, I don't know. Anyway, that's her version of that song. Um which has been done several times in various guises, but I think that's quite interesting, actually. Um, so 
what else did we do this week? Uh, I sat through the Blu-ray of uh, The English Patient, finally. It's been sitting on the shelf. Uh, Transfer's not great. It's a bit fuzzy. But the film actually hold, uh, does hold up. does hold up very, very well indeed. Uh, in fact, it was one of those experiences I had where uh, I didn't know anything about the film going in, which is often... You know, I saw. A, I was lucky enough to see an a, a industry screening before it came out, and I just went in not knowing very much about it at all. And uh, it, yeah, I was uh, rather because <laughs> I've, I've told you before, I'm a bit of a bit of an emotional wreck at the end of some films. That one, it just wiped me out. It didn't wipe me out quite as much this time. Uh, I have seen it a couple of times since. But what did what I was reminded was how brilliant Gabriel Yared's score was.
The English patient Gabriel Yarid's score for Anthony Minghella's 1996 film, which won, of course, Best Picture and a whole slew of other Oscars. Um, the thing to look out, actually, uh, on the Blu-ray is for Walter Murch talking about uh, how he cut the picture. It was the first film that he uh, ended up cutting on digital. They started cutting on film, but because he had to go uh, back to America for a family crisis, he then uh, started cutting it on digital, and that was the first film that he um, he didn't use film on. It's really fascinating hearing him talk about the difference and also uh, about his relationship with Gabriel Yarad and how they integrated the score and how quite often he would just... Um, you know, put the score randomly on the picture and just see what turned up. It was, uh, no, really interesting. So I can highly recommend that. Cheney has uh, written in, of course, <laughs> Tears for Fears was the answer I was looking for. I knew. How could I know all those things? I could see them in my mind's eye. I could see the cover of the album. I knew, it's just, we'd know a lot more about the human brain, wouldn't we? If we understood why we get that block so uh last week i didn't finish playing this track uh from apollo 13 by james horner so i'm going to play it now
Always a firm favourite in our house. Uh, that's James New... Uh, James New... Oh, God, Corinne. James Horner's uh, music from uh, Ron Howard's film, Apollo 13, which, you know, I don't know. It's not the greatest film ever made, is it? But the Apollo thing, you know, I, I, uh, I'm just a sucker for it, really. And... Have you seen The Dish? You should see The Dish. That's really... That was me. That little kid that's in The Dish, that was me. I was kind of an Apollo-obsessed 10-year-old. Uh, and actually, the score for that's not quite good. I'll, uh, not bad. I'll dig that out. Um, that was the guys that made The Castle, Australian film. Um, and if you've not seen that, yeah, I can highly recommend. So uh, I've run... I'm, I'm already going to have to... looks like I'm going to have to bump uh, poor old John Barry. But what I wanted to play, uh, play you was... Um, you know, because it's space... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to introduce some kind of daft method to this. This is Cliff Martinez's music from uh, uh, Steven Soderbergh's 2002 version of Solaris, which, um, yeah, I thought was actually more enjoyable than the original. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Then it will be Cheney, ladies. now it's like floating through space on Uckfield FM uh, that was uh, from Solaris uh, the score by Cliff Martinez all right well I have one of these and it's Cheney so uh, good evening Kevin Markwick here 
Uh, right, Cheney's going to mop up 1987, and then we move the time trunks <laughs> into 1988. OK, take it away, Cheney. Hello. 1987 was the high watermark of capitalism's explosion in America and the UK. The best pop song of the year, Pet Shop Boys' West End Girls, deals directly with the entrepreneurial, urban working class and the existentially hollow philosophy of acquisition. Well, acquisition pops up in films of 1987 in all sorts of ways. To start with, there's Roger Donaldson's excellent thriller No Way Out. The story is cobbled together from the debris of the Cold War, but fires up in a proprietorial spat over a woman. Sean Young was, sexually, one of the most interesting screen actresses of the 1980s, and her explosive affair with Kevin Costner's character, who is unknowingly cuckolding Gene Hackman's, is the only propulsion the film needs. Paul Anker provided a romantic title song to fuel the first act drama. In 1987, the Cohen Brothers Corporation satire, The Hudsucker Proxy, was yet to come. Instead, they focused on the rather more straightforward comic playout of child theft in Raising Arizona. When biology stands between Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter, they resort to stealing a baby, and a screwball comedy ensues. But then you already know about Carter Burwell's eclectic curating of Raising Arizona from a previous show, so instead, there's another drama featuring Nicolas Cage in 97, which deserves our attention. Moonstruck may be most famous for precipitating Cher's net curtain dress at the following year's Oscars, but it's also quite an earnestly observed wrong-side-of-the-tracks-style romance. Unlike Pretty Woman, where a visit to the opera was a way to highlight the juxtaposition of class, so a trip to see La Boheme in Moonstruck is a scene of old-fashioned romantic assimilation. On stage, the lovers say goodbye, but the music says that they are more in love than ever. Back in the amphitheatre gallery, the camera cuts between the principals, whose hearts have clearly triumphed over the same issue of the head. Stop you, see, when you're 
People are rather more difficult to acquire than things. That's what makes for good drama. Of course, that's not to say the old-fashioned pursuit of cold, unresponsive cash won't drive a story too. In 1987, Inner Space was just such a science fiction adventure, in which Jules Verne gets updated by the venal intervention of bad guys after miniaturization technology, and the cash that the highest bidder will offer for it. The good guys are either side of the same wholesome American coin. There's the great all-American successor to Jimmy Stewart in Dennis Quaid's boffin jock, Lieutenant Tuck Pendleton, and a man from the street, Jack Putter, played by a comic who is, as he is named, Martin Short. The drama and action of Inner Space came with a Jerry Goldsmith score, but the film's heart is in the set piece, where some whiskey and a boogie to Sam Cooke's twist in the night away. Brings the two heroes together on the dance floor. Goodbye. To Ozzy. Come on, Lucky Flask. Oklahoma, Tire. There you are. Jack. <laughs> When things are at their darkest, pal, it's a brave man who can kick back and party. Jack, let the good times roll. Let me tell you about a place somewhere up in New York way, where the people are so gay, twisting the night away. Twisting, twisting, everybody's feeling great. They're twisting, twisting. They're 
Thank you, Cheney. Can't say you don't get a bit of everything on this show, can you? From Inner Space, which uh, I remember took a while to get going, actually. Uh, we had to, it was in the days when they, well, actually, they, they do still do it, where you release the film a bit early and it's got to kind of, you got to sort of fight your way to Christmas before it starts taking money. And that was definitely one of those. Uh, Cheney will be back next week, mopping up 1988, which is brilliant. And uh, here we are in 1988. Kevin Markwick. Prisoners. Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough roads to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going. We don't need roads. You maniac! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you! Oh, the hell! Must be some kind of hot tub time machine. Here we are then, horribly late, actually. We're late for our own time-travelling section. So we unroll the time pants in 1988. Thatch still holding on. First Red Nose Day takes place. And the SDP merge with the Liberals. To form the Social and Liberal Democratic Party. Wonder how long it took them to come up with that name. Enzo Ferrari dies, age 90, and NASA resumes space shuttle flights after the Challenger disaster with Discovery going into orbit. Pan Am Flight 103 is blown up over Lockerbie, killing 270 people, and Roy Orbison dies of a heart attack. The top-selling single was Mistletoe and Wine by Cliff. And the top-selling album was cut. It's written taupe again. It did that a couple of weeks ago. It's, my spell check keeps turning taupe into top, top into taupe. The taupe-selling album was Kylie by Kylie Minogue. Funnily enough. And I got married. Eee, so there. Birthday by the Sugar Cubes was one of the indie hits of the year. So what was happening at the movies, Kev? Well, listener, there have been far worse top tens. 
than this decade. However, it doesn't yield an enormous amount of music, so I've sort of had to improvise a wee bit. Okay. Yeah, you're hearing Phil Collins. Sorry, everyone. Number 10, grossing £3.9 million, was the Brit crime comedy drama thing Buster. Starring cheeky chappy Phil Collins as cheeky chappy Buster Edwards, who cheekily does great train robberies. But it's okay because he loves his mum and his wife. Played by Judy Waters. Not his mum, his wife. We had a few of these films, actually. Very British, they were. Ex-cons writing their memoirs and then getting huge money for the film rights. They weren't always comedies, though. Well, I'm not sure this was a comedy, really, was it? Yeah, it had funny bits. Anyone remember McVicker with Roger Daltrey? That did all right. Inevitably, Phil Collins wrote and performed some of his inoffensive cheeky chappy pop and stormed the charts. So, at number eight... Uh, OK, here we go. I'm going to play this. There you go. That's what I'm supposed to do. Super slick. At number eight, grossing £3.9 million, was a reissue of Disney's classic The Jungle Book. Seems inconceivable now, kids. But before Disney sold the family silver to so-called home entertainment... I'm doing bunny ears. There was always a cinema audience for the old animated features. We were still playing Snow White in the 80s, and that was made in 1937. The songs by the Sherman Brothers are, of course, iconic. But you shouldn't pass over the rather lovely incidental music by uh, George Burns. George Burns? If I got that right. <laughs> it sounds wrong. I think it's right. I think he was that old comedian, wasn't he? It's all right, everyone, I've checked. It was George Burns. No relation. This is the opening credit music. It's lovely, wasn't it? Anyway, at number 10, grossing £4.7 million, was Bernardo Bertolucci's mighty Oscar-winning triumph, The Last Emperor. Certainly the artiest epic of all time. It tells the compelling story of Pu Yi, the last emperor of China, uh, how he's taken from his parents as a tiny child in 1908 and kept within the Forbidden City. His collaboration with the Japanese during World War II and his eventual release in 1959. Uh, mostly told in flashback, it really is quite a remarkable achievement. Uh, Vittorio Storaro's camera work is sublime, much of it actually shot inside the Forbidden City. They went and they actually got uh, permission to shoot inside the Forbidden City. Amazing, amazing images. Uh, particularly, you remember the bit where um, 
I don't know, what would you call him? He wasn't, it wasn't a coronation. I don't know, what were they called? What did you call it when an emperor was crowned? Extraordinary scene of all the um, priests and the little boy running in and out of the, of the, the muslins. Um, it's also notable for a wonderful sort of long cameo by Peter O'Toole as an Englishman sent to tutor the young Pu Yi. Uh, Bertolucci pulls off the David Lean trick of giving us an intimate human story on a huge historical canvas, affording us an insight into both. Winning nine Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director and, of course, Cinematography, it also won Best Score for uh, Rishi Sakamoto and David Byrne. emperor the score from that rishi sakamoto and david byrne who did what i don't know 
I remember I became a bit obsessed with that one, keeping the print clean. It's a strange time. Perhaps it was to alleviate the stress of an upcoming wedding. I don't know. Because it was in two parts. We had an interval in it. It took a lot of money, a lot of money for us, right up our street. And um, I became obsessed with not getting a single mark on the print. I mean, we, we didn't mark prints anyway as a rule, but that one, I just, I don't know. And it went back in the most pristine condition. No print. No 35mm print has ever gone back in... Uh, you know, having been run so many times in that kind of condition. Perfect it was. Perfect. So here we are in 1988. Ah, nice. And we're going through the top ten, and we can actually stick to the top ten this year because... There's actually some decent films in there. So, where are we? Where do we get to? Oh, at number seven was the uh, rather feisty and fast Barry Levinson comedy Good Morning Vietnam, grossing £5.2 million. Uh, It was a tour de force for Robin Williams as the DJ who shakes up the forces radio in Vietnam with his wacky characters and rock and roll. Uh, At number six, another Eddie Murphy vehicle. This one rather better than the rest. Um... The John Landis directed Coming to America. In fact, uh, Murphy seems to have done his best work when working with Landis. And then uh, at number five, another monster hit, and it was for us as well. <laughs> Yikes. I feel I want to go roller skating with a dog buying ladies' products. Because I feel free at last. At number five, then, was Three Men and a Baby. A totally 80s load of old tosh. Starring TV favourites <laughs> Tom Selleck and Ted Danson. Along with the personification of evil himself, Steve Gutenberg. Actually, what, what is it with Steve Gutman? He seems like the nicest guy, but he makes the worst films. Apart from Diner, that was good. Can't Stop the Music, who remembers that? Hands up, who remembers Can't Stop the Music? Uh, anyway, there are three confirmed bachelors who end up having to look after a baby. Wackiness ensues. Has anyone noticed just how much saxophone was all over every soundtrack in the 1980s? Like this one. Terrible score, but classic British comedy. A Fish Called Wonder was at number four. A meticulously crafted comedy by John Cleese and directed by Ealing stalwart Charles Crichton. And this music was by uh, John Dupre. Any relation? Anyone? Anyone? 
It fares zips along. The film, not the music. Um, in essence, it's a crime caper, but also a peculiarly British love story about the shedding of inhibition, which inevitably is punished horribly. Because we can't have that sort of behaviour. Good Lord, no. Take some lovely affectionate pot shots at Americans along the way. Cleese, of course, uh, I think was married to an American. In fact, uh, the co-writer. Uh, his wife. Thingy. <laughs> ah, it's gone again. Polly from Thingy, from Forty Towers. Anyway. Uh, uh, Cleese is typically brilliant. And Michael Palin is superb as the stuttering Ken. Remember Wanda. The two Americans on board were Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, Kevin Klein as the insanely stupid Otto. For which he won an Oscar. Don't call me stupid. And it surely has to be one of the great cinema comedies of all time, doesn't it? I mean, real belly laughs. I remember the first time we saw it. We were wet with laughter. Wet. Eyes wet. And puffy. It grossed £12 million and we ran it forever and ever and ever. At number three, the pointless and truly awful Crocodile Dundee 2, which missed the point of its own joke. The Dundee is a charlatan, not a real hero at all. <sighs> Cinema history at number two. I haven't, I'm not going to play any music from this one. Um, although it's the number two film I should. But anyway, Fatal Attraction was a massive worldwide hit. Horribly conservative and at, and at times incredibly boring thriller. It gave the world the phrase bunny boiler, I suppose, at least. Um, and actually, the entire reason it got away with it was because uh, it was rather ho-hum. Um, the rather ho-hum stick with what you know message uh, it got away with it because the last five minutes are truly terrifying the cinema jumps so high I remember watching them out the porthole they go Whoa! the whole theatre would go back as one when she comes out of the bath sorry spoiler alert uh, um, and the audience were so traumatised that they forgot they just sat through a rather sort of stupid hour and 40 minutes they went away saying oh that was a great film he sort of hoodwinked them that useless director bloke what's his name uh, Adrian Lynn, oh, I hate his films. Uh, so, uh, what was number one then? Ah, here we go. Uh, something quite different. <laughs> Grossing £15 million pounds was Barry Levinson's landmark mix of animation and live action Who Framed Roger Rabbit? This is Alan Silvestri's music. Nufty years in the making. It sure was a big over Chris, a big hit over Christmas in my cinema. It was also the start of my murderous thoughts towards the credit man. This is the end credits. Kill him! Kill him until he be dead! There are about eight minutes on the end of Roger Rabbit. No one cares. 
Not true. One person cares. And they're going to sit there and watch the lot. While I have a heaving foyer full of people waiting to get in. Or it's late and I just want to go home. Kill him. Beat him with a stick until he lies bleeding and begging for mercy. Anyway, I digress. Let's accentuate the positive. Roger Rabbit has an interesting premise, and what starts as a rather dark allegory about race and segregation ends up as a bog-standard evil property developer story. Never mind, still fun. But it's done with style and the tunes are terrific. Pretty much everybody is here from the MGM stars like Droopy and the Warner Brothers characters Daffy Duck and Porky Pig. It's one long homage to Tex Avery and Chuck Jones, basically. Look, see, the credits are still going. I just want to say where it was filmed. It was in Hollywood. Go home. The remarkable animation was done by British animator Richard Williams and his team. Uh, normally animated films are made in such a way that out of 24 frames, only 12 are different. However, to fluidly match up the live action with the animation, Williams insisted that the animation was a full 24 frames per second, twice the number of a normal film. The results, of course, speak for themselves, and the live action characters played mainly by Bob Hoskins and Christopher Lloyd are the least of it. Uh, one of Williams' greatest creations, of course, uh, is Jessica Rabbit. Um, she wasn't bad. She was just drawn that way. You had plenty money, 
Why don't you do right, uh, Jessica Rabbit? Uh, which was strange, wasn't it? You did. You thought, hello, she looks nice. That's <laughs> a cartoon. You're insane. Uh, and, uh, oh, God, look. Blinking credits are still going. Stop! Um, uh, yeah, and the, the voice was Kathleen Turner, was the voice of Jessica Rabbit. But I think, actually, uh, was it not Amy Irving that did the singing voice? The current, uh, I think she was Mrs Spielberg at the time. I might be wrong. Oh, we're down to best boy now. Gaff. Person who made the tea. They even started putting babies on, didn't they? Babies that were born during the... Really? We should put our own credits on, you know, carpets by. Projection services by. Ice creams by. Okay, so what else came out in 1988? Uh, I went through. I haven't. I haven't actually read this yet, so I'm going through it at the same time with you. It seems that the biggest film in America in 1988 was uh, Rain Man, which doesn't appear on our list. Uh, that would be because it probably came out the following year, 89, in the UK. It's very confusing. I know it came out because a lot of the time uh, it's the. Oh, anyway, it came out when it won the Oscar, that which would have been what the following March, April, February, or March, the following year. So that was the number one film in America that year. And looking down the list, what won the uh, Palm Door was Palais the Conqueror, fine film. Yeah, credit's still going. What else we got? The Abyss. Uh, Arthur Two? No, thank you. Betrayed. That was quite good. Costa Gavras' film. Uh, Bird, Clint Eastwood. Bloodsport. <laughs> Bull Durham. I'm going there. You can see this. I'm reading an alphabetical list. Cinema Paradiso, of course. Uh, cocktail. Oh, no. That was a guy. I always just think Tom Cruise did all turn at good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. That was one of his bad ones. Uh, what else we've got? Dead Ringers. Ooh, David Cronenberg's great, great movie. I'm going to zip down the list here. Uh, what else we got? Ooh, Lair of the White Worm. Ah, the wonderful Ken Russell. Not his finest moment, was it? Oh, and Little Dorrit. That was massive. We did really well with that. It went on forever, but we did really well with it. I think it was two films, wasn't it? Oh, look, the credits are finished. Finally. Oh, he's putting his coat on now. Yeah, and having a bit of oh, putting his stuff in his bag. Oh, really? Evening sound There, that was fun. 1988, all wrapped up. Uh, well, kind of. It's a bit of a sort of cursory trawl, really, isn't it? But uh, that's done. And then uh, Cheney will wrap up his uh, idea of 88 next week. And then we'll move on to 89. And then we hit... Yeah, then we sort of uh, run out of steam with three more shows to go. Any ideas? What should we do? Best of the 80s? Um, a look at the upcoming 90s? I don't know. You decide. So here we go. Uh, we've got good music now between now and the end of the show and some really good stuff, actually. And I've made the fatal mistake of uh, including a record that I can't possibly pronounce, but it is by the Liminanas. <laughs> Et qui me faut les 
Some seriously cool name checking in there. Jean Luc Godard, Martin Scorsese. Don't do accents, Kev. The Liminanas, Votre Cot Yeye Memerda, which I don't know what that is in English. It's probably something really rude about your mother. But I really liked it, and it came out last May. Uh, a French outfit, I would guess. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Okay, here's uh, Agnes Obel.
from the new uh, LP Aventine. That's Agnes Obel and um, Dorian. Rather lovely. Uh, we're going to keep with the loveliness. So the, the vibe, the vibe stays, uh, you know, for a kind of mumbling round midnight vibe. Uh, here's a daughter in Amsterdam. Skin like lightning Breathing flames from Taurus train Your eyes go quite frightening You lock your gaze onto my face in the breeze just restlessly seeking images a child needs to help them sleep I've been thinking that I should see someone just to find out if I'm alright
That's Daughter, Amsterdam from the current album, If You Leave. Couple more tracks to go, and then it's all over. You had it on my day. time. Kurt Vile from uh, last year's album Walking on a Pretty Days. It's called Never Run Away. Right, I've got to do one of these. That's it. It's all over. It's gone really, really quickly tonight. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you very, very much for listening. It means so much to me, and it would mean so much to me if you got in touch with the show. I know Jim normally gets in touch during the week. It's great to hear from him. I think he podcasts us. Sometimes he listens. I think it's mostly podcasting. Uh, and it's just great to hear from, from you if you're listening to the show. So I'm going to leave you with the uh, incomparable Kate Bush. Uh, this is called How to Be Invisible. Good night. Um, I'll see you next week. I love you all.
Stay with whole flowers. 